0: Hello, everyone. I am Frank Place, the director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, or PIM for short. And I'm very pleased to welcome all of you to today's PIMS webinar on Power, Politics, and Governance in the Food System, Applications to Africa. And I I, I encourage you uh, also to follow up uh, and look at the podcast the podcast or the webinar afterwards as well and share it with your colleagues. Our speaker today is Danielle Resnick. She is Senior Research Fellow in the Development Strategies and Governance Division of, of the International Food Policy Research Institute. Within PIM, Danielle leads a research cluster on the political economy of policy processes. Danielle is also a member of the lead expert group of the Global Panel on Agricultural Food Systems and Nutrition, GLOPAN and serves on the editorial boards of the journals Populism and Regional and Federal Studies. Between between 2010 and 2013, she was a research fellow at the United Nations University World Institute for Development Economics Research in Helsinki, Finland. In her research, Daniel focused on the political economy of development, decentralization, agricultural policy processes, and urban governance. She has conducted field work in Botswana, Burkina Faso, Ghana, Malawi, Nepal, Nigeria, Senegal, and Zambia. And she holds a PhD in political science from Cornell University. Before I hand it over to Danielle, let me remind all of you how we proceed with this webinar. Um, Danielle will begin shortly with a presentation that you will see on your screens, and the presentation will last for about 30 minutes. During the presentation, we invite and encourage you to send uh, in questions via the chat window on the right side of your screens. We collate the questions and group any that are similar in content. And once we are in the Q&A session, our, our, speakers, our speaker today, Danielle, will address that. the questions. We are handling the questions in this way to make the best use of our one hour together. And as I mentioned earlier, we are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live event. So with that brief introduction, I will turn it over to Danielle.
1: Okay. okay, Okay. thanks very much, Frank, and thanks to all of you for joining this webinar today. Uh, my webinar today is probably a little bit non-traditional in the sense that I'm not just going to present one paper or one project, but try to synthesize um, a range of different projects that we've done um, under the PIM cluster on political economy of policy processes, and as the title suggests, with a geographical focus um, on Africa. Now to motivate the work a little bit, um, I want to step back a little bit um, because we're not just interested in, in politics and governance for its own sake, but with regards to what it means for agricultural policy um, more more broadly. And if I move to the next um, slide here, I'm just adjusting slides, what we face today is. I think compared to about a decade ago, a much a decade ago, a much more crowded policy agenda for agriculture in Africa. Um, we've added a lot of adjectives to what we want agriculture to achieve. So first we want it to be climate smart. Um, and so we have goals such as having 25 million farm households in Africa practicing climate smart agriculture by 2025. We want it to, of course, be nutrition sensitive. And this is a real goal of the the AU Malibu Declaration, is having agriculture address issues of stunting and underweight. Uh, But as many of us know, we also face this double burden of malnutrition in in much of Africa. And so we're also asking agriculture and food systems to address urban obesity. And we have about 23 African cities have signed up to the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact. We'd also like agriculture to be employment generating. Uh, particularly for the youth. And this has been another key AU declaration objective, is creating job opportunities for at least 30% of the youth in ag value chains. And then, of course, uh, we would like it to be gender inclusive. Um, And again, the the AU Malibu Evaluation Framework emphasizes having at least 20% of rural women somehow empowered in agriculture by the year 2023. So we have these broad objectives Uh, that we want for the agriculture sector in Africa. And to achieve many of these goals, we've been focused a lot more um, on not just the farm, but looking throughout the agri-food system, looking from farming to processing, retail, and consumption. And we need a range of policy interventions to address uh, some of our key objectives across the food system. So, for example, we have productivity-enhancing policies, These are things such as investing in infrastructure, uh, investing a lot more in agricultural R&D, refining input subsidies to make them smarter. We have a number of regulatory interventions that we need in the food system. Uh, Of course, issues around land policy, um, intellectual property, uh, particularly with regards to seed issues, but also as we talk more about uh, industrial policy, we need to think about labor issues and food safety. Market-based interventions are often focused on changing prices. Um, And some of the key interventions in this regard are with regards to fiscal policy, taxes, things like sugar taxes, uh, of course, traditional issues around trade, um, and also around procurement policies, looking at some of our food reserve agencies and marketing boards in the region. Transfer policies are critical for uh, particularly protecting the poor. Uh, issues such as cash transfer programs and food subsidies, including for the urban poor. And then finally, we have a lot more attention uh, to behavioral interventions. Um, These are things such as uh, agricultural extension approaches that focus on training model farmers, uh, consumer education initiatives, especially around nutrition, and safe food handling and training to improve food safety outcomes. So in order to address all of these needed policy interventions, we can see it's quite complex in terms of the number of interventions, um, looking across the food system, dealing with a lot of government uh, ministries need to be involved with these policy interventions. And so this is what draws our attention to looking a lot more at the political and governance foundations to achieve many of these policy interventions. And so our work um, over the past few years under PIM and with the support of other donors um, has has basically focused on four key elements of politics and governance that really help us better understand, particularly when and why policies um, are more likely to be implemented and to have the the outcomes that we desire. So first, we look a lot at the issue of alignment. Um, Alignment refers to the degree to which relevant stakeholders share the same interests. Maybe not for the same reasons, but they certainly uh, share the same interests um, in terms of moving a policy forward. And some of the reasons why you may derail uh, alignment, or you may have a lack of alignment and fragmentation, is first a trade-off between short versus long-term outcomes. So we know certain policies show an impact in the short term, and that's much more appealing for politicians. Uh, than needing to wait a few electoral cycles before uh, the benefits of a policy manifest. We also have a trade-off between low versus high visibility public goods. So visibility typically refers to when when voters, citizens can actually see uh, a policy. So infrastructure is a very good one. Um, And when you can have high levels of attribution and accountability for who actually provided that service. You can also have de uh, dealignment when there are uh, trade-offs in harmed constituencies. And sometimes these constituencies can be our political leaders themselves who have very strong um, ties in the agricultural sector. Uh, we have a few presidents in Africa who have very strong ties in the ag sector, such as in Benin and Kenya. But it can also be thinking about which, which constituencies that vote for these leaders um, may be uh, hurt by shifting um, policies. And then beyond some of these materialist reasons for dealignment, you also have ideational um, issues, um, the balance between state and market, uh, people's beliefs about uh, certain controversial issues such as GMOs, or the degree to which uh, people believe in a right to food, for example. So all these issues, this is kind of a traditional area of political economy. is looking the degree Um, And subsequently in the presentation, I'm gonna give an example of uh, alignment with regards to two areas. One is with regards to input subsidy reform in Zambia. And then I'll also talk about the impact of the devolution process in the agricultural sector in Ghana. A second key governance consideration is capacity. And this includes the presence of funding, human resources, training, and infrastructure. Um, to really actually implement a policy. And I think this is quite self-evident to many of us that you need capacity, but I think that sometimes is forgotten in some of our policy recommendations where we don't realistically consider if the capacity exists for implementation. And I'm going to show this example with respect to some work we've been doing on informal food trade in Nigeria. Commitment has a lot of ties with alignment. It particularly focuses on when you really need to invest in um, policies that won't have an impact um, in the immediate future but manifest in a more long-term period. And here you really need to be thinking about uh, how you get sustainability of a policy beyond the mandates of a particular leader or beyond a particular time period in which the, the policy was originally adopted. So how you get maybe sustainability beyond just a crisis period. And here I'll give an example of land governance reform in Nigeria. Land governance is a typical low-visibility public good. Uh, The benefits often manifest in the long-term, and so you really do need to think about ways of getting that commitment um, over the long-term. And finally, coordination. Um, How do you get the institutional modalities to minimize duplication of uh, investments and interventions, maximize information flows, and avoid policy contradictions. We hear a lot about this with regards to donor, the need for donor coordination. Um, We also talk a lot about horizontal coordination that refers to uh, coordination across ministries. We can have also vertical coordination that deals with cooperation across different tiers of government. And then increasingly, there's a larger focus on business state coordination. So do you have business councils or other types of corporatist forms of engagement that allow Uh, governments to better understand the priorities of the business community. And again, I will use the informal trade example in Nigeria to also show some of these challenges of coordination. So let me now proceed to the actual examples that reflect uh, these four concepts that I was just referring to. So first, we'll look at input subsidy reform in Zambia. Um, And this work was supported by PIM as well as through USAID's food security policy project. And we were interested in a number of issues around the reform of Zambia's Farmer Input Subsidy Program, or FISP. Um, As many of you may know who are joining us, Zambia has had a subsidy program since the early 2000s. There's been a few tweaks to the program um, over the last uh, decade and a half. We were particularly interested in why the adoption of an e-voucher for subsidized inputs under FISP failed in 2013 but was actually finally implemented in 2015. And for a little bit of background on this, the push for an e-voucher had actually been on the policy agenda for a number of years, since 2008, been pushed by donors, been pushed by a number of local think tanks and also the the international university community. Um, The idea was that the e-voucher could uh, support a more diverse range of inputs besides just maize seed and fertilizer and hopefully diversify diets uh, in Zambia beyond just maize. Um, It could also allow farmers to go directly to agro dealers using these Visa chip cards um, so that it could reduce administrative costs and actually improve the timeliness of input distribution. And it allows for a much more uh, broader participation by uh, by the business community, a much larger number of companies can participate in the program, and so there's less opaque tendering um, around who, which companies uh, win uh, procurement for the program. So there were a lot of perceived benefits of it, been on the table for a long time. Um, we saw kind of implementation about to proceed in 2013, didn't occur, um, but it did finally in 2015. So this was our puzzle. And we engaged with uh, semi-structured interviews with a number of stakeholders in Zambia. Um, And then we did a review of a variety of secondary documents, including donor documents, reports from the Ministry of Agriculture, um, and a really interesting source of data, which is parliamentary hand where you can actually see what politicians from different parties were saying about the subsidy. We also used a tool we've developed um, with PIM and USAID called the Kaleidoscope Model of Food Security Policy Change, to understand uh, the, the policy change, policy tracing um, of this change. And what we found was, particularly using this tool that I'm putting on the screen here, which are called Circle of Influence Graphics, where you map um, who are the key decision makers, or what we call the veto players, in the center um, of the diagram, and we align their positions on a particular issue according to whether they support, oppose, or neutral. And we really found that the implementation proceeded in 2015 because you were able to win over key veto players who had stymied the reform in 2013. So more specifically in 2013, we had um, some very high-level actors in the Ministry of Agriculture and Livestock, or MAL, um, who were actually personally benefiting from the opaque tendering process at the time, and were not likely to to benefit from a more transparent system under the e-voucher. We also had members of the Agricultural Committee in Parliament who felt that Zambia didn't have the technological uh, capacity, particularly in rural areas, to make an e-voucher system effective. By 2015, we see a switch in some of these positions. So some of the uh, key individuals stymieing reform within MAL were removed. Um, And in the interim, the Zambia National Farmers Union had shown through one of its own schemes that a visa platform could be used uh, for things such as an effective e-voucher program. Um, and so, a number of parliamentarians were convinced that there was actually the, the technological infrastructure to do this program. you also notice from this diagram that uh, there was also a switch in the positions of presidents in Zambia. Uh, in 2013, you had President Sata. Um, who was very much focused on the urban poor, um, not too concerned with with rural interest and didn't have a strong opinion on the e-voucher. When he passed away in 2014, he was then replaced by President Lungu, um, who didn't have the same kind of charisma and uh, appeal with with urbanites, recognized the need for their party, the Patriotic Front, to reach out to more rural voters, um, and saw putting this e-voucher on the, the Patriotic Front Manifesto um, as being a way to show that they could do something different uh, from the previous ruling party, the MMD. So our second example is looking at devolution of agriculture in Ghana and it's a different way of looking at the alignment of incentives. So our first example in Zambia shows how if you can align incentives you can get um, you can get positive policy reform. This example is going to show the the challenge with aligning incentives and how it leads to to policy trade-offs. Our specific research question was what has been the impact of devolving agricultural functions to the approximately, at the time, 216 district governments in Ghana. There's now 254. But at the time of our work, we were looking at the 216, um, what they call MMDAs, so Metropolitan Municipal and District Assemblies. The background here is that Ghana has been decentralized uh, since since the early 1990s, but has practiced a more limited form of decentralization called deconcentration. And when the uh, new party came in in uh, in 2008, uh, they pushed the following year to have a more substantive form of decentralization known as devolution. Devolution effectively involves the wholesale transfer of authority in certain sectors to elected local governments. So that's really key. You can't have devolution if you don't have elected local governments. Agriculture, uh, public works, and a few other sectors were seen as being the first areas that should be devolved, and the sector was formally devolved in 2012. The uh, district agricultural staff became members of the local government services instead of being uh, civil servants of the National Public Service Commission. And also a composite budgeting system was established. So this is a real change in how uh, the budgeting was done for agriculture. So previously, the district agricultural offices received their budgets from their line ministry, from the Ministry of Agriculture or Ministry of Food and Agriculture. Through composite budgeting, money comes from the Ministry of Finance directly to the district assemblies, the MMDAs, and then the district assemblies decide how the money will be allocated to the sectoral departments. And so pretty key here is that the general assembly for the district assemblies, which is about 70 percent comprised of elected uh, local authorities, uh, is now deciding how budget allocation should be made. In terms of our data, we surveyed 80 district directors of agriculture across all 10 regions of the country. And the map on the right-hand side of the screen highlights in orange which districts that were targeted for uh, the interviews with the the district directors. Then the hatchings uh, in gray that you see on the map are also where we complemented those surveys with a survey with 960 households so that we could get both the citizen perspective and the bureaucratic perspective. And then we also used district-level budget data that we received from the Ministry of Finance. This uh, slide here is basically to give you just a sense of the institutional landscape uh, as a result of the devolution. You can see that it's quite complex and that there are arrows going everywhere. Um, And so your departments of agriculture that sit under the MMDAs, um, they're facing quite a lot of upwards accountability. They are reporting to the district assemblies. They're also still reporting to the regional agricultural departments and to the Ministry of Food and Agriculture. But they're hired and fired, as I said, by the local government services on the right-hand side. And they receive a majority of their money from the Ministry of Finance. In addition to that upwards accountability, they're supposed to have downwards accountability for service delivery to rural households. And the main service that these departments of agriculture are responsible for is agricultural extension, which is a kind of quintessential low visibility public good because it is quite difficult for people to uh, be able to judge the quality of extension in the short term. What we found looking at budgets um, was something that really corresponded to what we found out from our interviews with the district directors. Many of those district directors of agriculture who had been in office since, since and, and before the devolution transition had noted that um, they had lost resources for the department that they were personally funding a lot more field visits. Um, And when we look at the actual data, we did see an actual decline in agricultural expenditures on average when averaged across all of the districts. Um, And in comparison, we saw an increase in public works expenditures. So public works, if you remember, was also devolved like agriculture, but public works is funding more visible goods. It's funding infrastructure, it's funding schools, It's funding what are called CHIPS compounds, which are health compounds. And so one of our key findings here is that the locally elected politicians prefer uh, using their budget for these more high visibility goods than for low visibility ag extension. Um, And in a way, they are doing what devolution is expected to do. Local governments are better aligning with the interests of citizens. They're engaging in preference matching, which is the goal of decentralization. We found from our citizen surveys that households really appreciate also the increased accountability um, that local politicians have to citizens through devolution. But the real contradiction here is that if politicians are preference matching um, and citizens don't prioritize low visibility goods then this increased accountability results in a decreased provision of certain services we think are pretty key for agriculture such as extension. This even plays out um, from on the picture we have on the right, this is um, a set of motorbikes that were donated um, to districts. This particular district is called Shai Osudoki, but there are a number of other districts that receive this from the Canadian government. Um, but the district assemblies have refused to pay for the fuel or the licenses for the motorbikes. Um, so these motorbikes have just been sitting idle. There's paint brush paint brushes on top of them. Um, and there's actually, you can't see the other side of the room, but there's another set of motorbikes on the other half of the room. Um, and so it's it's a real, um, real de- detrimental outcome um, of the devolution process thus far. So move on to this other um, component of governance, which is looking at commitment. Um, and here we'll use the example of land governance reform in Nigeria. Our specific research question was looking at why have some states in Nigeria proceeded further with a titling approach called the systematic land tenure regularization, or SLTR, than other states. The background here is that we know land governance more broadly has been a really important policy priority of the international community. We've seen this through the AU's declaration on land, the FAO's voluntary guidelines, um, the World Bank's development of its land governance assessment framework, And Nigeria um, is well known as having a problem with land titling. Um, It's been very difficult to get any policy traction on this issue, but the late President um, Yardua in 2009, uh, he was committed to to doing something different. He set up a President's Technical Committee on Land Reform, or the PTCLR, to try to come up with some recommendations about how to improve land titling uh, in Nigeria. And this committee um, did did a number of study tours and uh, reviewed a lot of the secondary research, and they decided to push forward this SLTR based on successes that there had been in Rwanda under the same approach, and also some interesting case studies of success in South Africa and Thailand. Now, we focused here on the state level because in Nigeria, which is a federal country, Uh, The federal government has control over resources under the ground like oil, um, but it's the states that constitutionally have control of surface land. And so the states are the important unit of analysis for this work. Our data involves semi-structured interviews with more than 90 stakeholders across six states. We picked six states that had all been uh, beginning this process of adopting SLTR in 2012, but by 2016, we had seen very different outcomes. And we focused on seven components of implementation. Um, These are listed in this this slide. Uh, On the left-hand side, we have um, some indicators such as was a geographical information system set up or land records digitized, um, a number of other components that you can see there. And from our interview data, we were able to code how much progress had been made in each of these areas. Um, And what you can see here is that Kano had made the most progress uh, in implementation, and Katsina had made hardly any progress at all. Some of our reasons for finding out why this was, well, across all states, we found no citizen demand for SLTR. Um, and that's very much reflective of what we said earlier. This is kind of a low visibility public good. It's hard to get um, citizens mobilized around this. A number of civil society organizations we interviewed had never heard of this approach. and and had not been advocating for it. We did find though this differentiation um, came as a result of three key factors. One was where there had been continuity in political administration across elections. Um, So our time period of analysis um, intersected with the 2015 state level elections where you had a changeover in governors in a number of states. And the continuation of SLTR was most present where you had the same political party Um, or administration in office. Secondly, and I think this is a key one, um, where donors did not bypass ministries of land and try to set up new agencies um, or seed really key functions to external consultants. This both hindered a sense of sustainability of the program and also created a lot of resentment among bureaucrats and ministries of land who felt that they had been sidelined and in some cases actively tried to undermine the process. And finally, perhaps not too surprisingly, where you had more diversity and donor support for the reform, um, you had more money for the reform. um, And that, of course, is really key for rolling out something so structurally uh, complex as land governance reform. Finally, um, I'll look at informal food safety in Nigeria to give us a sense of some of the challenges with coordination and capacity. Here, our specific research question was how do local governments ensure access to safe food from informal food traders in Nigerian cities? Um, This is a really important question more broadly because uh, informal markets and traders are a major source of food for the urban poor, not just in Nigeria, but in a majority of African cities. But we do know that food safety hazards are quite common in informal and wet markets. Um, And we saw from the recent World Bank Safe Food Imperative Report Um, that there has been a lot of government attention to improving food safety standards for food that's exported, uh, but not as much to uh, domestic food sources. It's a really key policy issue. And local governments in Nigeria, as in most African cities, um, have a mandate over the different components of informal trade. For our work, uh, for this project, we surveyed over 1,000 informal food traders in two secondary cities. We didn't want to focus on Lagos because there has been a lot of work on Lagos and a dearth of information on what's going on in in the rest of Nigeria. So we focused on Calabar in the southeast um, and Mena, which is located in Niger State, um, which is further in the northwest of the country. So two geopolitically distinct regions of the country. And we complemented that survey data with semi-structured interviews with state and local government area or LDA level officials to do some institutional mapping. And this institutional mapping really highlighted for us the confusing array of actors regulating informal trade and a real lack of coordination. Um, Because Nigeria is a federal country, you do see even variations at the state level in addition to the local level. In Calabar, for example, you've got health, transport, environment, even the police who who are involved in regulating informal trade uh, because there are what's called mobile courts set up for um, traders who violate uh, regulations against where, where and when they can trade in the city. And then of course, you do have revenue departments that are really key at the LGA level because contrary to conventional wisdom, informal traders are actually taxed quite a bit and they're, they're often a the key source of revenue for local governments in Africa. In MENA, we even add to this complexity by having Ministry of Agriculture, um, livestock also being involved in regulating informal trade. When we talk to traders um, in terms of who are the government officials that, that they engage with most often in the course of a month, um, we wanted to particularly get a sense of how effective have been the health officers at the LGA level in enforcing health regulations. Um, in Nigeria, in theory, um, food traders are supposed to go through some medical examination, have um, some uh, food training, get a certificate, and they're supposed to be regularly monitored by health officers who go around the markets. As you can see here, hardly uh, anyone, it's only 6% in Calabar and only 4% of traders in MENA um, are engaging with health officers on a regular basis. Um, And if you ask about, you know, do you have your certificates, you get a very, um, very circumspect, response uh, that that the traders didn't even know that they needed to have this. By contrast, um, if these traders are having engagement with any government uh, actors, it tends to be the revenue officers who are coming around for taxation. But this taxation doesn't often manifest in better service delivery, particularly in areas that are really key for food safety. So if we look at the table on the right, um, we can see things such as trash collection, or clean running water. You have a relatively low percentage um, of traders, particularly in markets, and not those on the side of the street, but those in markets who have access um, to these services. What I also want to point out though, is that this capacity varies across cities too. And I think that's key. We often talk a lot about state capacity and we're talking about the national level, but when you look at cities, um, you, you get this differentiation, which is quite interesting. So, things like proper drainage, uh, only 15 percent of respondents having access to that in Calabar, with more than half in MENA. So, some key findings with respect to uh, informal food safety. Um, First is that compared to what we know for Lagos, for example, um, where you have a very harsh, uh, quite repressive environment towards traders, um, those in some of Nigeria's secondary cities operating more in what I'd call an environment of benign neglect, so relatively little enforcement of uh, food safety regulations, um, but also very little um, delivery of key services necessary for food safety. And as we saw, there's a multiplicity of mandates across government entities and a lot of confusion over accountability, low capacity to enforce uh, particularly food safety uh, guidelines even though there's pretty high capacity to extract revenue. Some policy options in this regard are to support market leaders in the same way we do with model farmers for extension, focusing on market leaders um, who can be trained and can help monitor uh, sanitation guidelines. And another approach, given that these governments do have constrained resources, um, is to develop some type of scorecards to identify some of the worst affected markets with regards to to food safety and service delivery, and concentrate resources in those to, to target enforcement. So, let me then just step back again to um, bring all of this together um, and what this means uh, with respect to politics and governance for, for policy change for agri food systems. And as I said at the outset, we have many, many agendas now for agriculture, many goals we want agriculture to achieve for us. Um, Agri-food system transformation is now viewed as quite key uh, to delivering on those many goals. But it, of course, requires policy interventions in a number of domains. Alignment, capacity, coordination, and commitment, I think are some of the essential uh, components from a political and governance perspective to get effective implementation of some of these policy interventions. Now, it requires really identifying ways to align Uh, Technically optimal solutions, so solutions we think from a research perspective can have the the biggest benefit for the poor, aligning those options with the interests of veto players, so as our our Zambian example showed. But as the the Ghanaian example showed, um, you can sometimes have uh, uh, trade-offs across policy goals when you're pursuing alignment in one domain. Um, So in the Ghanaian example we had kind of greater alignment with local government local citizen priorities, but it of course has a trade-off with kind of national government priorities for improving uh, agricultural growth and expanding extension. And in this case, really looking at sequencing issues. Um, so for Ghana, for example, the, uh, the impacts we saw could have been mediated a little bit if we had uh, improved fiscal decentralization before uh, the devolution had effectively been implemented. We need to also assess the degree of needed commitment to actually have an impact and whether there's a realistic alignment of interest to sustain it. And I think this is particularly true for some of these long-term policy reforms, like land reform. Um, Interventions like that, that involve a wholesale bureaucratic and cultural uh, reform, they're not really achievable in a five-year donor cycle. And that was one of the challenges that um, state-level governments uh, faced in Nigeria. And then finally, finding ways to uh, consolidate responsibilities over informal food trade. We talk a lot about the need for coordination, uh, but this is actually quite difficult to do. Ministries, local government departments, they often have key disincentives to cooperate. They don't want to share budgets. They don't want to lose relevance. Um, And so I think it's important to think about ways we don't spread responsibilities across many different ministries or departments, consolidate them in key ones. Um, and also try to avoid regulatory frameworks that really can't be realistically enforced. In those cases, these these regulations just become more uh, symbolic rather than substantive. So before I conclude, I'll just give um, uh, some sense of what's next with some of this work. Um, Some of the work is is completed, but there is um, some expansion of research that we're doing on the governance of informal food trade in African cities. So we are expanding on the Nigerian research, extending it to Ghana. Um, We've already uh, conducted a survey of 1,200 traders in Accra, Kumasi, and Tamale um, to understand when and why food safety regulations and trade laws are enforced, um, and also when and why some traders receive key services in exchange for their tax payments while others are not serviced. And then you've heard me talk a lot about uh, capacity. Uh, we're probing this issue of capacity a little bit more um, at the local government level through uh, work supported by PIM and also the International Growth Center, where we uh, have conducted interviews with over 200 bureaucrats and elected politicians across four Zambian provinces to understand a number of things, um, including the degree to which a mayor's party affects the autonomy, the policy autonomy, a uh, district council receives from the national government and also how political interference by elected counselors affects bureaucrats' motivation and career aspirations. And we're working with the Decentralization Secretariat in Zambia uh, to use this research to revise their implementation plan for later this year. So I've talked a lot in broad strokes um, throughout this uh, webinar. Uh, We do have the references to each of the, the papers, the projects I mentioned, if you would like more information. And of course, you're always uh, welcome to email me directly if uh, you want any more information about this research. So I'll leave it there, and I welcome uh, hearing some of your questions.
0: Great. Thank you very much, Daniel. That was very interesting. Um, I'm going to start off with a couple questions. Uh, um, I was wondering about uh, on your, your next to last slide where you talked about some of the summary conclusions and implications, I was wondering about just a general question about the policy impact that you've had with this political economy research. So, how well are these uh, studies uh, received by different stakeholders in the countries that you've conducted the research? And uh, is there uh, any um, progress towards um, impl- implementation of some of the recommendations?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, the, in terms of the policy impact, what we I think almost all of these uh, studies that I've mentioned, we have presented to um, relevant policy actors and country. Um, And the reaction we often get is um, lots of nodding heads that they they recognize these challenges are out there. Um, So particularly the devolution work um, that we presented in a group that included Ministry of Food and Agriculture, included local government uh, secretariat and the Ministry of Finance, they all recognize this challenge Um, The challenge is uh, if you don't have kind of the high-level political actors in the room, um, then you don't get a lot of traction um, because I do think uh, a lot of these systems that we're dealing with, uh, particularly the Anglophone African ones, have quite a um, hierarchical bureaucracy as well. So uh, I think some of the mid-level bureaucrats are well aware of these challenges, but I think the, the the challenge for me and some other researchers who work in this area is trying to uh, convince the the high level policymakers. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks. I think also when I look at the totality of these uh, different studies, there's a lot of insights in there that can benefit. Other researchers, because a lot of other researchers are conducting studies around agriculture, rural development, et cetera, in these same countries, mm-hmm. and many of those researchers also have ambitions to help inform policies mm-hmm. in their respective areas. Mm-hmm. Um, are there? Uh, I mean, what do you see as the potential um, uh, that we can learn from such studies as other researchers, or what are the limitations really to how we can draw upon these to help our in you know develop our of change and impact pathways and so
1: forth. Okay, thanks again. Um, so I think, there's, I think there's quite a few things, and I think it depends on what we're trying to do. Are we trying to get a new policy on the agenda? Are we trying to uh, refine an existing policy? Um, a few things that have come across in this work is looking for these kind of windows of opportunity to get traction. Um, you may have might have noticed in a number of the examples I gave from Zambia and, and Ghana, uh, Nigeria, um, it was often when you had a change of government um, that you saw their interest in trying something new, whether it was the SLTR, uh, whether it was an attempt to actually get that e-voucher promoted uh, under the PF in Zambia. So I think being savvy about when those political changes are coming and, and uh, using those as, as windows of opportunities to get our research in the policy process and I think, secondly, with respect to uh, implementation, I think we've learned a lot of lessons about what you need. Uh, you obviously need financing, um, but you do need some of these um, institutional coordination modalities uh, for implementation. Um, and so I think thinking through as researchers, when we give policy recommendations, uh, what is actually the institutional landscape on the ground? Uh, will that map? Uh, appropriately with the recommendations we're giving um, or will then this just kind of fall on deaf ears because you don't have the type of coordination, you don't have the type of financing, um, you don't you don't recognize I think the key role of local governments um, uh, in policy implementation. Um, so I think there are there's some common threads about what we can learn about getting policy on the agenda or getting it implemented once it is on the agenda.
0: Great. A related question that's come in is that uh, it was observed by someone that, yeah, indeed that these political economy factors are very important for success, mm-hmm. successful projects, but yet at the same time the experience uh, for this person is that very few uh, projects that were engaged in the CGI and elsewhere actually incorporate political economy dimensions into the project. So why, why is that? Why is it not more widely recognized as a, as a critical component? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, well, I mean, I would venture to say one is um, we, well, I don't think that's the, uh, the the training of a lot of people in the CGIAR. Um, we have a lot of special specialists in many areas, but not particularly in political economy. Um, so I think that, that's one challenge. Um, and then I think, secondly, I think many who even don't have this training are, you know, recognize well these political and governance constraints, but um, kind of feel like nothing can really be done. It's kind of, we accept this and move on. Um, while I think the, the kind of Zambian example I gave is, is a nice one in the sense that um, researchers and, and donors and uh, kind of international community were able to eventually uh, find a way to sell uh, what they thought was tec- technically feasible, but sell it in a more politically um, uh, digestible way uh, for the president. Um, and I think it's finding those areas of, of alignment um, that can be, be quite powerful. Because as I said before, it's, it's about finding, you have different reasons for selling something, um, but if you can find a way to frame it, um, communicate it in a, in a different guise, um, you, you can get some traction from uh, high level actors.
0: We had a question from someone in Cameroon, and I don't see that as a list of countries that you've <laughs> done research in. But the question, I think, we can generalize it. It was really about on uh, uh, subsidy issues uh, for fertilizers and other inputs. And um, you know, I guess maybe what I could ask you is, if you have you looked into that issue of, uh, around the continent, and what's kind of the current level of discourse around uh, subsidies and Um, You know, the politics behind it, and is there any changing, uh, uh, you know, uh, levels of of interest uh, in those uh, at the moment?
1: Uh, My sense is um, that there's a bit of an acceptance. I think by the international community that uh, we don't push on stopping subsidies anymore, but the, the whole idea of making them smarter, uh, making them more climate resilient, so bringing in you know hybrid seeds into subsidy systems that are climate resilient that lead to maybe dietary diversity. Um, so I think from, from the international community, we're, we're seeing that kind of change. Um, we still have many governments that are pursuing subsidy policies and have had these refinements either from technology um, using e vouchers or trying to diversify that you don't need to just produce a staple grain um, to use them. so I think you've seen uh, more acceptance by governments of that. Um, I think it's still seen as um, it's seen as a political tool. Um, we don't have too much evidence that is actually what citizens want. Uh, we have a lot of kind of secondary literature about, looking at voting patterns and what communities receive subsidies, but we haven't really looked at the preferences of citizens for subsidies vis-a-vis other goods and services that could have been delivered um, using the money for subsidies, for example. And that was one of the interesting things that came out of the devolution work when we looked at citizen priorities. even um, even agricultural subsidies even for farmers were ranked further below uh, issues related to education and health
0: speaking of uh, citizen demand so on one of your studies uh, the land governance in Nigeria you had mentioned that the, uh, the the land tenure reforms were never driven by citizen demand does that actually mean that the land tenure land insecurity problems were not Higher priority, or it was just the intervention itself that they were not so much in favor. In favor.
1: Mm. Um, yeah, so we we can only speak to the intervention per se. Um, we didn't we didn't do a full survey on what uh, citizens felt were land insecurity needs, uh, but there was uh, a, a persistent belief this was a quite top down, and as I said, you know it did originate with the president. He had his committee and then uh, some key donors really um, supported this initiative um, and then visited governors in different states who then would you know, talk to emirs or other religious leaders um, to kind of help the information trickle down. So it, it was quite a top-down initiative. It's also quite a complex concept as well. So um, it is hard to get uh, everyday citizens to understand what this reform would mean for them. What was telling, though, is that we had, even where this uh, this reform proceeded um, quite far um, and certific- certificates of occupancy had been uh, issued, you had very little uptake, people actually mm-hmm. coming to get them, uh, many fearing that it would lead to increased taxation. So if they were titled, then they're, they're more likely to be taxed. So there was kind of poor communication around uh,
0: yeah, the policy reform. Yeah, quite interesting. Uh, maybe I maybe I uh go into a question about methodology because I noticed in a s- several of your examples you have um, semi-structured interviews with uh, mm-hmm. key stakeholders, and I yeah. I can imagine that's a, a tricky exercise to figure out who you should talk to to get the full story, and maybe mm-hmm. some people you wind up not having access to that you would like to. And yeah. so how to, can maybe you can tell us about how you go through the, some of that decision about you know, selecting uh, mm-hmm. these stakeholders to get to the bottom of the issues.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Um, yeah. So, in a lot of the research I do, I like to combine qualitative and quantitative approaches. And you might have seen that in the discussion that we often like to have kind of large-scale surveys with citizens or households where we can do some econometric work, but to kind of get some of the causal story um, through the semi-structured interviews. Um, and doing that requires a lot of research at the outset, of course, before you go into the field, um, doing, doing a mapping of who are the, the stakeholders who consistently come up, um, both, uh, in terms of, again, this kind of horizontally, what are the important ministries? What are the different sub tiers, um, of government? Which donors have been really essential, uh, in the policy process? And then other types of advocacy groups. Um, so I think like a lot of, a lot of researchers who do kind of qualitative work in this area, you look at um, these five or so groups of stakeholders, your government, your donor, your civil society, uh, your private your private sector, um, and then also, you know, potentially engaging with uh, research community or think tanks as well.
0: And within those groups, um, if we take a private sector company or a, a ministry, there's many different types of people you could interact yeah. mm-hmm. to, with and talk to in there, and they might give you slightly different answers. So how do you um, uh, uh, make some decisions on who to talk to and in those cases?
1: Well I mean ideally you you want to talk to the person you think is the most knowledgeable. Um, So if it's the we're talking to like fertilizer companies um, as we did in our Zambian example we want to talk to the executive directors for example um, of the company. Um, But uh, of course sometimes the time that you're doing field work, those high-level indi- knowledgeable individuals aren't available, so you often have to triangulate with maybe more lower tier uh, uh, informants um, and try to kind of triangulate in your other interviews to to see if you actually got uh, representative information.
0: In, the, in a couple of the cases that you had mentioned, uh, the, uh, and you, you put up very, very complex diagrams of uh, the Uh, informal food uh, 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 governance in Nigeria and the devolution Mm -hmm. in Ghana and um, I I guess that's the nature of our our challenges today though that they are very complex and they do require a lot of um, interaction and cooperation and coordination. Are there any um, in the countries that you have worked in are there some good examples of models that seem to be working well to to, um, uh, improve alignment and interests?
1: Okay, it's a great question. Um, there are a lot of, I think, public sector administration uh, experiments or reforms that have gone or, uh, gone on around the region. Um, you know one, one thing that has um, gotten a lot of attention are these delivery units, um, so presidential delivery units where you typically um, you know, have an office within the Prime minister, president's office, you have the high level attention. Um, where you are coordinating across ministries around specific goals. So you've chosen maybe four or five objectives to achieve on, um, and you have a set of ministers who are responsible for those, and they need to report back at a regular interval to the president or the prime minister. Um, Tanzania had this um, under the previous president, the Big Results Now initiative. Um, South Africa has something like this, which is called the Big Fast Results or Operation Fizika. Um, not not a lot of other African countries have effectively implemented this. Um, there was some, I think, still some discussion of this in Ghana, for example. It is an approach that has been um, quite successfully used in Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, uh, even in our U.S. state of Maryland at one point. Um, a second approach, which has a lot of overlaps with the delivery units, are performance contracts, um, whereby, you know, ministers have um, indicators um, or budgets um, that they need to deliver on, and they need to regularly report how they've been doing on those indicators to a high-level person, like a president or prime minister. But then you have it throughout the bureaucracy. So your mid-tier, your lower-tier bureaucrats also have performance indicators they need to pursue. Um, And this has become, uh, we see a lot of uh, bureaucracies uh, I think throughout the region that have adopted this approach to to different degrees of success. Um, it has its disadvantages where you're just focusing on the target and not necessarily how you got to the target, um, but it does put kind of a results focused framework um, in the process. Good,
0: okay, we may have time for a couple more questions. There's some more coming in, but we want maybe what I should mention at the moment now that we'll send all the questions to Danielle and she can follow up with some of the more. Um, detailed uh, comments and questions that are coming in that we can't get to. But there was a question about whether there's any, currently whether you are, are or you, uh, yourself or if you're aware of anyone else, looking at the political economy on climate change um, policy and, and uh, implementation in countries, you know, looking at your aspects of alignment and capacity mm-hmm. and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is a focal topic. Is there any work going on there at the moment?
1: Um, I, I personally don't work in that area um, and off the top of my head I, I don't know who to directly um, uh, push you to, to looking towards, um, but it's perhaps something maybe CCAFs could yeah. uh, help inform a little bit more. Okay, yeah, we'll try to follow up yeah. and
0: get back to the person who asked that question. And then another, another question that came in and said, well actually data itself it can be a political economy issue, as you mm-hmm. pointed out, and yeah. those who have it might uh, mm-hmm. be able to tax people <laughs> based on the knowledge. And as we know, all the, 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 re- the a lot of the, the data that's collected by researchers itself could be used and uh, misused as well. And so are you involved in any kind of discussions and discourses about the, the politics of data?
1: <laughs> oh, that's, a good, that's a good question, <laughs> the politics of data. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, the short answer is I'm not involved uh, in any projects around that. Um, I think it's definitely true, and we see how, um, you know, governments, which governments are more likely to disclose their data, um, sometimes maps with the type of political regime <laughs> that you're dealing with. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't know uh, off the top of my head uh, who may be dealing with the politics of data. Um, but it's it's definitely something that probably in the CG we should be giving more attention to. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, great. Um, so one of the I, 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 you know in your in your studies, it's obvious that the the a lot of the results you're finding are very context specific. So within a country, you're observing uh, certain results from this sector that might not hold for another mm-hmm. sector and it mm-hmm. may not even hold over time, as mm-hmm. you noted uh, some mm-hmm. policies couldn't uh, the, the case of Zambia for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of for I mean I guess the challenge is how do you get make how how can we learn larger lessons from the results that we know are quite context specific and mm-hmm. you probably have faced that that issue as well how do you mm-hmm. how do you um, you know get more impact out of your your own stu- studies that so mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so that's kind of a question I have around you kind of as a researcher how do you,
1: yeah. how do, you do that? Um. Yeah, so I think, I think it depends on the, the topic and the audience you're dealing with, but I think, I mean, one tactic is to do, um, I hope what I kind of outlined today, which is to look at what are, what are the bigger substantive conceptual issues that the work is dealing with, um, and particularly when we're looking at public investments, um, you know, I do think that a lot of work um, can be nicely tied around whether this is low visibility or high visibility, public goods, and then the types of political economy dynamics that follow from that. So, um, you know, work we've done on land, a lot of the work that um, uh, that myself and many of our colleagues that if we do on, on nutrition, um, you know, have that tendency, um, and of course, ag extension as well. Um, so I think kind of finding what are these more abstract concepts that the work is addressing, uh, regardless of the country or the mm-hmm. sector is, is really the, the tactic piece. Mm-hmm.
0: And is there a a community of practice? uh, I mean, you have colleagues that, say, for example, that might be working in other African countries than you do, Mm -hmm. um, but on similar issues. Is there Mm -hmm. ways of bringing all that uh, body of work together and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, make Um, it accessible to others?
1: Yeah, so there's there's quite a few colleagues who work on um, political economy of distribution issues. Um, So whether it's dealing with electricity or water issues um, or input subsidy issues. Um, So you have a lot of people looking at um, who gets these services and what it does to voting behavior. Um, And so uh, I know particularly of there's the African Politics Working Group. Um, This is kind of a community of practice, predominantly of professors at different universities who work in the African politics space. Um, there's often, there's also what's called the African Politics Conference Group, um, which has its own website. It includes a number of political scientists who work on these issues, many of whom are doing more ex- experimental or RCT um, work around distributional politics in, in Africa.
0: Great. Uh, well, thank you very much, Daniel. That was very interesting and very informative. And I think many of us learned a lot because, as you say, there's not that many political sci- scientists in our system and globally, so I think we all learned quite a bit, and, I, and, I, and it was a great, great seminar. Very well done, and uh, we're very ha- happy that this is part of the PIM program, uh, and we see a lot of uh, growing demand for this uh, within our program, so thanks very much. Um, I just would remind people that we will, we will post the, this, the webinar on our website, so please look at it, and we will follow up uh, with Daniel with all the questions that have come in. And before I do sign up, I want to uh, alert you to the next PIM webinar, because it is approaching us very quickly, next week. So we're going to have one on May 14th by Alan Dubrow, who's a senior research fellow at IFPRI, on determinants of rural youth migration throughout the developing world. So please uh, sign up if you're interested. And thank you very much.